0: I remember after that um, 80K trail ultra, and I was destroyed after that. I was just done, done, done. And I remember the next day, I was living in a third floor apartment. I had to run down and catch the bus, and I ran down the stairs and caught the bus. I got on the bus, and I thought, like, I just did an ultra the day before, and here I'm running down the stairs to catch the bus, and I didn't even notice anything. I
1: didn't even think of anything, you know? And it was that was the difference in terms of recovery. This is the Plant-Fueled Podcast. My name is Cass Warbeck. I'm a medical student, plant-based athlete, and vegan lifestyle advocate. This podcast is all about bringing you conversations to optimize your health and elevate your performance. Hey, guys. Today's conversation will be great for any of you endurance athletes or anyone out there eyeing some longer distance events. Training and fueling for long distance races takes such a commitment and a willingness to push yourself into the uncomfortable. I have such a deep respect for endurance athletes and that's one of the reasons I'm so excited to welcome my guest today. Joining me is Dr. Pamela Ferguson, a registered dietitian with a PhD in nutrition, who has over 15 years of experience in everything from research to teaching, as well as public health and clinical practice. She's also an accomplished runner and speedwalker and has completed multiple half marathons, one marathon, a couple ultra marathons, and a self-styled Ironman. Amazing, right? Dr. Ferguson has worked as a dietitian internationally in Europe, Africa, and Asia, and for organizations such as UNICEF and the World Food Programme. She's currently in private practice in British Columbia, Canada. She's been featured on multiple podcasts and spoken at nutrition conferences internationally. She is fascinated by nutrition and loves bringing wellness and fitness into her own life. This involves eating a whole food, plant based diet and cooking and baking with her four children. Dr. Ferguson brings all of this joy and experience to her dietitian practice, and today she is sharing it with us as well. In this conversation, we talk about her experiences as an endurance athlete, and how she personally fueled her training, protein needs for athletes, high-fat diets, the problems with dairy, and so much more. Before we get into it, though, just a quick shout-out to my show sponsor, Warlock Golf. Imagine, it's a calm autumn morning. Sun beams through the trees, the fall colors contrasting with the bright blue sky. A couple of Canadian geese glide swiftly through the light breeze, landing awkwardly on a nearby pond. Unfortunately, you're not enjoying any of this because you're playing golf. They say golf is a nice walk round, but not when you're using golf accessories from warlockgolf.com. Warlock Golf is a Canadian-based company rooted in small-town Manitoba that understands that golf is supposed to be fun. That's why they offer a variety of -of one-of-a-kind ball markers and golf accessories that'll add some serious style to your game. Add some fun back into your game by visiting warlockgolf.com and using discount code PLANT15 for 15% off your order. That's code PLANT15 for 15% off your order at warlockgolf.com. And one last thing, if you're enjoying my podcast so far, please share it with someone else who might find value in it. Thank you. Now on to my conversation with Dr. Pamela Ferguson. Welcome, Dr. Ferguson. Thank you so much for joining me here today. Thank you so much. Thanks, Cassie. So you, there's so much to you, and I'd love to, um, before we dive into everything nutrition and athletics, can you tell me a little bit about your path to becoming a registered dietitian and a plant-based one at that? How did you find this career?
0: I actually wanted to go to medical school originally, and I was in university at U of T. Um, doing an undergraduate degree. And I went to hear a talk in the medical school. It was just like a special talk that anyone could go to. And it was about public health nutrition. And in the talk, they were talking about how, um, I think it was like 80% of chronic disease had nutrition as an important explanatory variable or contributing variable to that disease. And I was really um, struck by that and thought, well, I would like to be involved in preventing disease rather than waiting for disease to develop and um, reacting to it. So I thought nutrition seems to be a good way of cutting across many diseases in terms of improving, optimizing health and um, and reducing the incidence of many chronic diseases. So, uh, that inspired me to want to become a registered dietitian.
1: Amazing. I can totally agree. I am so passionate about the nutrition side of it. And for you to just like dive into it head first, like it's, we need more people like you. Um, so when did you become plant-based? Were you plant-based before becoming a dietitian or was that later on in your journey?
0: I started my nutrition degree in, I think, 1996, and, I mean, there definitely were some people who were vegan at that point. I had met some vegans, but it was definitely much more um, unusual. I didn't hear about it a lot. I didn't know about it a lot, and um, I was vegetarian at that point um, and uh, didn't actually become vegan until about, oh, I, I actually always forget exactly when I became vegan, but I think it was around nine years ago that I became vegan.
1: Okay. And what were just, I know it could be a whole conversation in this itself, but what were your initial reasons for going vegan?
0: Actually, I was motivated to go vegan um, because of uh, environmental reasons. Um, I was very motivated by the fact that I feel, for example, we have plenty of land in the world to be able to feed the world and we're just distributing um, our resources, our caloric resources and our protein resources improperly. Uh, That was actually the reason I originally went vegetarian as well, (laughs) way back in uh, the 90s. And I read diet for a small planet. And that it was a similar reason when I kind of became more educated and learned more. I realized that actually becoming completely plant based was the answer more than just becoming vegetarian. Um, I was um, motivated uh, by trying to reduce the carbon footprint of my diet. And then as I explored that further, I also really saw how being plant-based and eating a high plant, high fiber diet was exactly the answer to that thing that I've been looking for back when I first uh, went to that public health nutrition lecture, that one simple um, message was actually what will make the biggest difference for most people in terms of trying to achieve Um, preventing and mitigating chronic disease is eating a high fiber, high plant um, diet. And then um, after taking those two steps, um, I started to dive into the animal welfare um, and animal rights side of a plant-based diet and made the decision to become like, uh, ethically vegan and to completely give up all animal products, um, including what I wear and, um, you know, uh,
1: cosmetics, all of those things. Thank you for sharing all that. And I can relate (laughs) quite a bit because I feel, um, plant-based nutrition and veganism, it's kind of a rabbit hole once you get into it. And there's so many different entry points, but then we all seem to end up in the same place. And, um, yeah, I love your initial reasons for going. And I think, Even today, like the environmental aspects of it is more people need to be aware of the environmental consequences of their food choices.
0: Absolutely. I think, um, you know, eating is something we all do every single day. And there are many ways that we can be reducing our consumption of resources through changing the way we buy clothing to the way we um, use transportation. um, water resources, so many different things. But the thing is that agriculture and um, our food choices are probably the biggest uh, impact that we as individuals have control over. And it's a decision that we make every day several times. a day. And so um, choosing to go as plant-based as you possibly can within your household will make a very big environmental impact. Let's not let the corporations off the hook here. They actually are the ones that need to really be cleaning up their act. However, we as individuals also So can make an important difference and doing what we can, what we ourselves are able to do in terms of our diet is the biggest opportunity that we have to um, help the planet.
1: I completely agree and again thank you for sharing all that. We're going to dive into diet a little bit more, um, you know, a little bit here, but before we do, um, I know you're, you're such an endurance athlete and I understand you've completed many long distance races, uh, both running and actually speed walking as well. So I'm wondering, do you still train a mixture, a mixture of both running and speed walking like today or how did, how does that evolve?
0: Uh, I really haven't been training much in quite a while, although I actually have recently committed to doing a half marathon in January. So I'm going to have to up my game. I've been sort of like doing a lot of, I don't know, yoga and just like much more restful and restorative things in the last couple of years. Um, but I am going to be getting back out there and training for a half marathon. Um, and I think I'm probably going to be speed walking. I kind of got into speed walking because I had a recurrent hip injury that kind of kept going away and then I'd get to run and then, you know, I would trigger it again and then back into physio and like, you know, multiple things to try to fix it. And so I switched over to speed walking and I never seem to trigger it through speed walking. So it's something that just seems to be much more sustainable for me. And I also really love it. I really love speed walking. Um, and so, uh, I think I'll probably be speed walking this January. I may see if I could do a bit of running training because I do love it, but, um, I think I'll probably be sticking with speed walking.
1: Yeah. I feel like it's a really good alternative because running, running is hard on the body, especially actually some of these (laughs) long distance (laughs) events. Well, best of luck with your uh, half marathon in January. I know personally, I'm always so much more motivated to train when I have a date and a goal set. Absolutely. And I think that's been something that so many of us have been
0: feeling over the last couple of years without events to train for. um, It does uh, demotivate a little bit or at At least I find for some of my clients anyway, they're sharing that same emotion that without an event, it's harder to stay very motivated. I've also felt um, during the pandemic and just some of the things going on in my personal life that I've really felt more of a need to just do very restorative and gentle things um, to just stay grounded and stay balanced. But it'll be good to get out there too. I live in a very beautiful area of British Columbia Canada. So it will be great to be out uh, training through the fall.
1: Yeah. I bet just training, having the ability to train outside is wonderful in itself. Yes. Yes. Um, So I guess diving back into some of your race history then, um, Mm -hmm. can you share some of the race distances you've covered? Because I'm not really sure everyone in my audience knows what an ultra marathon is.
0: Yeah. So an ultra marathon is any race that's longer than a marathon. So I started out running again after um, my partner and I adopted, we had a birth child and then we adopted three more children. And uh, I think I just needed an outlet for some of the stress that that brought along with it. It was a wonderful vibrant and uh, big thing to be doing. And I think running was an outlet, uh, for me to kind of find some time for myself. And I started with just shorter distances, 5k, 10k, went up to half marathon, did quite a few half marathons. I think I've done like seven or eight half marathons, did a marathon, um, and then started getting into ultras. So, um, I've done an 80k trail ultra um, I've done um, I've done a number of self supported events, just doing my own thing. I've I've walked fifty k quite a number of times myself. I've done a one hundred k walk myself. I did my own self supported, self styled uh, Ironman, um, including like the full thing with the I don't even remember what the distances are anymore, but like the full full distance Ironman with the bike and the marathon and the, and the swim, I had to do the swim in a pool because I didn't have like a boat to support me and stuff like that. So I did the swim in a pool. Um, but I did those things, um, self-supported. I did a few other organized events too. I did another hundred K race. that was like one of those loop races, which was a lot of fun. Um, and, uh, yeah, if anyone's thinking about getting into ultra, racing, I really encourage you to try it out. Even just find a 50 K race. If you've done a marathon before, then the next step up would be to try a 50 K and the ultra community, um, I think is so, um, supportive and so kind. And I think I was starting to find like that when I was out training for my marathon or my half marathons, I was like, constantly checking my pace and I was really starting to become very motivated to achieve a certain time and very um, focused on okay I need to fuel I need this compression gear and I need this and that and moving to ultras really took just a lot of the pressure off of that for me anyway it was much less focused on pace and it was more just about achieving the distance and getting into more of the headspace of an ultra which was kind of zen-like and I sort of put the Put the um, you know timing apps and things like that down, and um, it, a lot of the races are done um, on trails or in nature, so um, I really enjoyed that aspect of it as well. So if you've done a lot of road races and you think you might like to try an ultra, I really encourage you uh, to give it a go um, and I also want to put in a word for doing self um, supported self-styled, uh, events when you can just choose the day you want to do it yourself. Um, and, um, you know, especially during COVID right now, and we, like we talked about a lot of events have been canceled, setting up your own event or setting up an event, maybe with a few friends or a running group that you have and doing your own thing,
1: um, is, is really liberating and a lot of fun. You're really selling it actually. <laughs> I've, um, <laughs> I've, my extent is I've completed a half marathon like years ago, mm-hmm. but I've been, i I feel like I need to do a marathon. I've heard so many great things, but it's super cool to hear the difference between after beyond a marathon, how the community and how the feeling changes. And I feel like anything out in nature, and it's yeah, I might yeah. have to try, <laughs>
0: but doing a marathon. I really think is like such a, it's such an accomplishment and it's such a thing to do, but it's like very much for me anyway, in the experience, like it's like having another job, like <laughs> training for a half, you can just about like slide it into the, fit into the rest of your life, but training for a full marathon and a, trying to achieve a time goal and like taking it seriously, it is a real commitment, and uh, you will find it kind of takes over your life a little bit. So just be prepared for that. It for me, I think it was like a once in a lifetime thing to take it that seriously and do it because of the way it did a little bit take over my life. It was wonderful, but I don't think I'll become that marathon person that does them year after year after year. But um, the ultra thing, I think it just had a vibe that I found much more welcoming, and I loved a lot.
1: And so I'm so curious. You mentioned you did like one of the lap races. Was that, because I've heard you talk about doing a 24 hour race. Was that the 24 hour? I can't imagine. So does that, you just run for 24 hours straight? So that
0: one I walked, I think, but yes, it's 24 hours. And it was, that one was a lap. Um, race uh, in London, Ontario called that damn hill. So it was in a park and the lap on that one was fairly short. I don't remember exactly how long it was, but I think it was quite short, like maybe 2k or maybe even less than that. And so you just go around and around and around, but there's, it's really nice to have that because you can have your own cooler with your own Um, you know, you don't have to carry all your hydration. You don't have to carry all of your food, um, because you're passing by your own, um, stop, you know, on every lap. So it's easy and you can set up a little rest station for yourself. If you want to be able to sit down, have a stretch, or, you know, you can bring gear. Like, unfortunately on that particular race, it poured rain for, I think the first nine hours (laughs) It was awful actually. Uh, and so, you know, you can bring dry clothes and things like that and keep them in your cooler so that you can change your socks. Um, Keeping dry feet is very important in an ultra because um, you take the risk of developing blisters definitely when you're going straight for 24 hours. And um, if you can keep dry feet that are not blistering, that will put you a lot further ahead. Um, I did another uh, ultra race um, that was a 24 hour, but I didn't uh i i did i think you had to do at least 80k and after 80k i stopped on that one it was a loop but it was a very hilly loop and um i think after it was an 8k loop i think and after 10 uh loops i was like okay i'm done <laughs> but yeah so i d- i think i didn't go the full 24 hours on that one but um yeah uh i really at that time in my life. And it was very inspired by those, uh, long distance and like training through the night and all that kind of thing. I, I really found that kind of thing. A lot of fun at that point in my life.
1: That's amazing. I have so much respect for endurance athletes and the, like the ability to push yourself past like that limit of uncomfortable is not everyone has that. Do you know, is that something that you feel like you develop through training or is that something like inherently you're born with?
0: I think it's something that I don't know if I was born with it, but I was definitely raised with it, the ability to push through discomfort. And even though I don't think I'm doing that in my physical training so much right now, I definitely still uh, in my day-to-day life push through the discomfort (laughs) many, many times just in my parenting or in my working life this year. uh, Those things also take that kind of endurance and that kind of pushing through even when you're exhausted and, uh, you know, finding a way to still find the energy and to regroup and recenter, even when things are hard. Um, there are many ways that that kind of, um, endurance mentality applies to our lives in general, not just, um, our lives as endurance athletes. You can share any like lessons you've learned from your racing. Yeah. Uh, that's probably it. Uh, and, uh, just trying for me, it was just about, there was a time in my life where I was really driven to do that kind of thing. And it was very much a release for me and it was a joy for me. And then there reached a point for me. I reached a point where, um, it wasn't really a joy anymore. I remember I was out training. I was really far from home. I was living in Toronto at the time I lived way in the West end of Toronto. I was like, running. I was like way over in the East end of Toronto. It was late. It was cold. It was dark. And I remember sitting down on somebody's like, wall, garden wall by the sidewalk or something. Just like I was like, again, you know, I need a, bra- a break. I need to sit down, and have a rest. I sat down and I was like, you know, I would really rather be home in my bed right now. <laughs> and up until that point, I was always like wishing to be out training. And at that point I realized I think I'm starting to transition away from this being what really serves me. And as soon as I felt that way, um for me anyway, I started to transition away from doing those really long events. Um, um, because there's, I don't think it's ever something we should force ourselves to do. It's like, you're, you're driven to do it or you're finding joy in it or you're not. And as soon as you're not, I think it's time to seek something else that some other type of
1: movement that your body finds joyful. Yeah. I think that's actually really good advice and something that most people can probably relate to on some level, whether they've ever done a race or not. Um, Yeah. No, thank you for sharing that. Um, so I, I would like to hear a little bit more about the details of your training, but I I'm wondering, have you been plant-based for all of your races or did you, that is a great question. I
0: think, I think the, first half marathon that I did, I wasn't fully plant-based. I think it was maybe like predominantly plant-based, but not completely. And I definitely noticed a huge difference in recovery. That was the thing that I really noticed. I remember after that first half marathon, and I really left everything on the table on that first half marathon, I really fully went for it. And, um, and uh I remember for days afterwards like hardly being able to walk down the stairs, you know, that's the thing, right? After a big race, like not being able to walk downstairs. And I remember after that um 80K trail ultra and I was destroyed after that. I was just done, done, done. And I remember the next day um I was living in a third floor apartment. And the next day I had to run down and catch the bus. And I ran down the stairs and caught the bus. I got on the bus and I thought <gasps> Like I just did an ultra the day before. And here I'm running down the stairs to catch the bus. And I didn't even notice anything. I didn't even think of anything, you know? And it was, that was the difference in terms of recovery. Um, I don't know that my performance necessarily was dramatically better on a plant-based diet, maybe marginally. I was never like a podium finisher or anything like that. Um, but uh, but recovery was very different. And I think that, that is down to a uh, plant-based diet being less inflammatory, um, and actually anti-inflammatory and helping um, you to clear uh, a lot of the impact of the
1: um, race more quickly. Yeah. And just on that point as well, um, even if the plant-based diet in itself didn't improve your performance, the ability to recover quicker enhances training in so many ways. Like if you can Absolutely. recover from your workout, you can train harder the next day. And so I think mm-hmm. it's almost like not a direct influence, but it definitely can impact performance for athletes out there.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. It can. And, um, you know, I think there are probably quite a few reasons why I'm not sure my performance changed all that much, mostly because I was also managing parenting for young children and running a business and a household and doing lots of other things. So to say I was an athlete, well, that's true. I was an athlete, but it wasn't that my athleticism was was receiving the top priority um, in my life in order to organize my training. My training sort of had to fit around my life. So my performance was always um, something that was just serving uh, the other elements of my life. And it was a way for me to find joy and find freedom um, in my life, uh, and to sort of be connected to myself, even at times where I was pouring a lot of myself into my family and my work, it was like a way to stay grounded in myself.
1: That's super interesting as well. Um, because a lot of people, they're like, Oh, I don't have time to train. I don't have time to race. Um, and you like running your own practice with four children, like you managed to fit it in. And from what I'm hearing, it's like, you strive to find balance and it was about having your priorities set, I guess. Am I understanding that right?
0: Yeah. Although I would say I did sacrifice sleep pretty often Mm. in order to train. So I don't know if I would actually (laughs) recommend that. Um, It was something that was worth it for me at the time because um, training was so joyful for me that I did make that work. But um, was it actually really imbalanced? I don't know if it was all the time, but it was very helpful for me in terms of my emotional mental health and stability. So it was worth for me, it was worth sacrificing some sleep, but we all know sleep is incredibly important to our health. And so, um, I don't know if I would actually recommend uh, sacrificing sleep in order to study or in order to uh, get your work done or in order to train, but it does it
1: does happen. Getting back to, I guess, what you ate and your diet, what did you do personally to fuel your races? And then we can get into some more like general ideas for like plant-based athletes.
0: Well, the really fun thing when you're speaking specifically about the race day, the really fun thing um, about um, ultra athletes is that they eat like they pretty much eat like normal food while they're out there like it, they don't they don't really get into so much the gels and um you know the the um like gummies and and that kind of thing they really eat like salted boiled potatoes is a big one <laughs> um and uh they do have candy usually at ultras but like if you go to the table the um station where the fueling station is you'll see like sandwiches, there's lots of bananas, there'll be dates, there'll be oranges, but there'll be like peanut butter sandwiches and stuff like it's not and boiled for sure, boiled salted potatoes. It's not like we're at a marathon where you're most likely just going to be handed a gel um at a couple of points in in the race and then maybe some Gatorade or or other brand. I'm not you know vouching for Gatorade or anything, but they'll give something like that, an electrolyte drink. Um, so When I was training for um, my ultras, I did usually bring actual food with me um, on my long training sessions. And that's what I used as well on race day. Um, I used different things. Um, I personally found for me, and this is just my own body, that my body did not do particularly well breaking down fat uh, on really long endurance events. A lot of people do great with fat and they'll do like avocado sandwiches and that kind of thing. You know, that was not for me. I had to keep it pretty much to carbs and protein. Um, So I would do, I think I did like Um, rice balls, uh, with salt, uh, like sticky rice balls with salt that I would make into little balls and wrap them, um, dates, um, I would use, um, sliced oranges, bananas. Um, I did, yeah, mostly keep it to, to whole foods, um, for my training and for my, um, events. And when I used to train for a half or for, um, full marathon, Um, I would use, um, cliff shot blocks. I think again, not vouching for any particular brand, but that's just worked better for me. I, I didn't really love gels. Um, they didn't really sit all that well with me or I didn't like the taste of them very much. So I would go for the shot blocks, um, when I did marathons and I would like practice, you know, like, you know, you get into like just these very specific things, trying to shave, even just like, Seconds off, you know each each um, transition. So, you know, I'd I'd uh, slice open the shop lock package and then practice being able to like transition, pulling it out of my pouch and like being able to like pull one shop lock off into my mouth and and eat it and and to be able to do all of that without having to stop or having to slow down or whatever. So, I mean, that's the kind of thing that eventually I started to feel wasn't really the way I wanted to use my time. but um, yeah, when I did really try to take my time very seriously, I would get into trying to be very clean with my transitions around fueling. Um, and I made my own, and this is something i I used all the time, even when I was ultra training and marathon training. I made my own electrolyte drink, which this is this is something you might want to try. Uh, I think it is really tasty. Um, so I'd use coconut water and maple syrup, and lemon juice. Um, and it's really nice, very tasty electrolyte drink that for me was a nice alternative to something like Gatorade or any of those other brands. If you, if you like those, if you enjoy those, and they're convenient for you, that's great. But if you wanted to try something homemade,
1: then um, I really enjoyed that recipe. That sounds really good. I love anything that's a little more like homemade and whole food plant based. Yeah. I'm, I'm more of a fan of for sure. Um, yes. so it seems like it's a very personal, personable thing, like figuring out what works for you, especially for some of these long distance events. Um, yeah. yeah. So when you were training and when you were planning and, um, meal prepping and all this, did you pay attention to the specific calories? Like, did you count calories and have goals that you needed to reach per day and per week, or was this more intuitive?
0: I definitely, uh, did not do specific calorie counting. I would work intuitively. And so when we're thinking about my regular eating, not, not for fueling a training run or fueling, um, and, um, an actual event, I really just, um, ate very similarly to how I already ate, you know, uh, I think Big bowl of oatmeal in the morning or a big smoothie is a, is a great start to the day. Um, maybe doing like a big salad with lots of protein in it and a whole grain um, or a like power bowl or something like that or a wrap at lunch. Um, you know, uh, some soups, curries, stews, um, that kind of thing at dinner time. That's kind of the way that we ate. Um, and I would probably just, you know, supersize my portion a little bit or have one or two extra snacks a day. Um, I found that it didn't really require a huge shift in the way I was eating. I was a little more intentional around protein. Um, Sometimes I used a vegan protein powder. Sometimes I didn't. Sometimes I just looked at the whole food sources of protein. But being more intentional around making sure that I was getting um, protein probably three times a day, making sure that I was getting a good source of protein in my meal, tofu, tempeh, beans, lentils, nuts, seeds, that kind of thing. Um, And uh, again, I didn't do anything dramatically different from how I eat otherwise, Uh, just probably adding an extra snack or a slightly bigger portion or maybe seconds sometimes, and just worked intuitively with how I was feeling and how my um, hunger changed. I know that for me, um, I, my, hung, I did get hungrier for sure. When I was endurance training, um, I definitely was, um, hungrier than usual, but be careful about the trap that, uh, you know, you think, oh, I just ran for three hours. Therefore i like can eat all day, whatever I want. Um, well, you can, you can do whatever you want, but, um, you'll find that, uh, a lot of people will actually overcompensate with calories if you have that mentality. Um, and I'd encourage people to really try to tune into their hunger and fullness cues instead of just sort of thinking, Oh, I'm, I'm a runner. Therefore, uh, I should just be eating all the time. I think that kind of messaging isn't the most helpful and instead really try to feel into your body, um, how you are doing. And the biggest Um, indicator of whether you're overfueling or underfueling are any dramatic changes in weight. So if you notice that you are dramatically losing weight or dramatically gaining weight, little shifts are no big deal. But if you notice um, dramatic rapid changes happening, then that will be an indicator
1: for you that you are really under or overfueling. Super helpful for anyone that's maybe um started or they're training for an endurance event or maybe they're thinking about it. Um, so a lot of good things to keep in mind there. Um, I would like to just get back a little bit because you talked about protein and you talked about being a little more mindful um of getting enough protein. And I have to apologize, I'm sorry, but I need to dig into the protein question a bit more. Of course. Yeah, go for so, it, yeah. Um specifically, let's say like a, a vegan client is coming to you, they're training for an endurance event. Um, what exactly would you say their protein needs? are do you recommend specific amounts or how do you counsel them in this area
0: yeah so i would say that usually we'd be talking about um a, somewhere between 1 to 1.3 grams of protein per kilogram per day um when they're let's say they're training for um a marathon Even when you're marathon training, there's probably only three or four weeks in that training cycle that your training is really intense and the rest of the time you're either scaling up or you're tapering. So when you're in the really uh, long, long run stage, you may want to go to the upper end of that 1.3 or maybe even slightly above that um, grams of protein per kilogram of body weight per day. But for most of the training cycle, you're probably okay at um, one or maybe a little bit more than one gram of protein per kilogram of body weight per day. Again, it depends on other factors too. It depends on um, other sport that you might be engaged in, um, particularly if you're doing any um, heavy weightlifting training along with your endurance training Um, and uh, other factors. Just, I, I just want to be cautious around giving one blanket piece of advice for everyone. But I'm going to say, in general, most of my clients would fit into that one to 1.3 grams of kilogram grams of protein per kilogram of body weight per day. So, let's say you weigh um, 60 kilograms, then you would be eating 60 grams of protein per day, and you can break that. Down to um, say three meals, 20 grams of protein per meal, approximately. We can't really absorb more than 30 grams of protein at a time in any one meal. So there's no point super loading your protein into one meal. Um, you are better to spread it out, like I said, over three meals, or if you also incorporate snacks, then you can add um, a bit of protein. And as we know, protein occurs across almost every single food. Almost every single food has protein in it. All, all plant foods, vegetables, fruits, nuts, seeds, almost all, except for maybe vegetable oils, almost everything has protein. Um, but there are foods that are going to be richer in protein, uh, again, um, Tofu, tempeh, uh, beans, lentils, nuts, seeds—these are the plant-based foods that are richest in protein. And some grains and pseudo-grains too, like quinoa, for example, is a pretty good protein source, or bulgur or buckwheat. So, um, you know, I think uh, the key advice is to um, to figure out what your weight is in um, kilograms and. Eat at least that, at least one gram of protein per kilogram of body weight per day and spread out that intake across your day.
1: That's great advice. So you mentioned there's there's obviously so many, you mentioned them, the different sources of plant-based proteins. Uh, you had also mentioned plant-based protein powder as maybe mm-hmm. like a convenient option. What are your thoughts on like the different blends, like soy, pea, hemp? There's different options out there. Do you have a preference?
0: I personally like um, for most people that they choose a blend. Um, So I like um, to advise people to choose something where there is a mix of different sources of protein in the protein powder. Um, I'm going to name a specific brand right now. This is not to say that this brand is particularly um, the one you have to go for, but one that I've used before is Genuine Health Fermented Vegan Protein. I like that because Uh, I find it can be a little bit easier to digest and break down uh, because it is fermented. So I find clients who maybe sometimes struggle with um, digesting protein powder are going to find that one a little bit easier to manage. It is a blend. Um, I would advise against going for um, a single source that is like soy or pea. Because if you are having protein powder every day and it's soy or pea, I have seen people develop um, uh, an intolerance to those products after using them regularly. And so I just think if we look at a blend or if you vary the protein source, um, you're less likely to develop an intolerance. You probably break it down a little bit easier. Um, I have sometimes recommended a single source um, seed protein to someone who's very sensitive to different protein powders. So there's a pumpkin seed uh, protein powder that is single source. And that's the only ingredient is, is pumpkin seeds, um, defatted pumpkin seeds, I think. Um, so I would say that's an option. It's not quite as high in protein as, um, some of the others, but if you're really sensitive and struggle with protein powder, that is an option. It's not quite as complete, however, as some of the others are in terms of the range of amino acids, all the amino acids will be there, but, um, in nuts and seeds, uh, amino acids like lysine, for example, are a little bit limited in the um, proportion that's in the product so I would say if you can go for a blend if you tolerate it okay I would say um, go for that and remember that you can also go for half a scoop um, if you're listening to this and you find like a full scoop of protein powder to be a little bit too much for you try half a scoop try even quarter of a scoop you know these are like 20 grams of protein per serving even if you go half a scoop that's still 10 grams of protein plus if you're also eating um, let's say that's going into a smoothie and you're Putting soy milk in there, there's another seven grams of protein. You're also putting maybe some peanut butter or some hemp hearts or some flax seeds in there. You're getting protein um, from those whole food sources as well. So, um, you know, if you're struggling uh, with protein powder, um, then you can uh, go for a smaller portion of the protein powder and still get a lot of the advantage.
1: Yeah, I think that's one thing I was just, I've been surprised by is how quickly it can add up sometimes. Like you can, right? Like if you're eating like, like I put lentils and like my oatmeal, such like it adds up fast. So, um, so shifting to the other macronutrient that everyone talks about is, um, Oh, and
0: I want to, I want to just add one more thing about protein before we move on, Mm -hmm. which I didn't mention. And that is plant-based meat alternatives. Mm. If you're a person who's really into being as whole foods as possible and you avoid plant-based meat alternatives, that is completely fine. You don't have to ever eat them if you don't want to, but if, You do incorporate them. Sometimes they are um, usually quite a um, uh, quite high in protein. Uh, For example, seitan, um, you know, vegan sausages, vegan burgers. They do tend to have around 20 grams of protein, approximately per serving. So that is another alternative that you could bring in, say, maybe once a week if you want to incorporate those um, into your diet. If you prefer to be whole foods, then that's great. You can definitely
1: do that too. Okay. Thank you for adding that in. Um, all right. So just real quickly, um, a lot of endurance athletes, I know, um, like the high fat keto diets and you personally said, this doesn't work for you. I'm just wondering your thoughts in general. Do a lot of
0: endurance athletes like high fat keto diets? I think there's a I lot don't of talk I about, heard about it. I about it on it. <laughs> you know, I think there's a lot of talk about it being fat adapted, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. I haven't actually, like, I've tried looking into it. I haven't actually found that many serious endurance athletes mm-hmm. that really do um, claim to be fat adapted and use that in their events. Um, you will hear about some people who will reduce um, the. Um, carb uh, loading or intake that they take in on a regular basis and then they'll carb load right before an event so and use carbs in the actual event with the idea that they're going to get even more of a boost from those carbs because they are fat adapted that kind of thing I've heard of all of these things Mm -hmm. I have not yet seen the evidence that this from research that this is um, successful from what I've seen and from what I understand we're still really all top tier, um, you know, insurance athletes across sports, uh, that I am aware of are still by far m- the majority of people are using carbs as their main source of fuel. That's what our bodies are, um, are naturally going to want to do. Um, if you're listening to this and you're a fat adapted athlete, absolutely hit me up. I would love to, honestly, I'd love to hear. I'm not um against it. Uh, you know, if you are a vegan and you're eating lots of like nuts and avocados and coconut milk and stuff like that, and, and you're fat adapted um and that's working for you as an insurance athlete, I'd love to hear more about it. But I think to say that there are lots of insurance athletes doing it is I think probably um not really accurate. I think most insurance athletes are still carving
1: up. Most of the okay. time. Okay, great to hear. Um, another <laughs> maybe myth that we can cover then is I don't know if it's so prevalent anymore, but we've all heard the advertising that chocolate milk is one of the best recovery drinks oh, out there. Yeah. yeah. Can you just share your thoughts on this? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I think in terms of recovery, what we need is something that actually is mostly carbs and has some proteins. So we need carb and protein. Um, and so, I mean, I mean, chocolate milk, okay, it does have some carbs and it has some protein. It has just like added sugars is where a lot of the carbs is coming from. I think much better if you want to do something like that, Um, have like a glass of soy milk and a banana, you know, or have like a a piece of toast with peanut butter or something. Uh, This is, these are going to be much healthier, much more whole food options. We don't need to look to chocolate milk. I get the idea that it might be um, seen as convenient. But I think really what's going on here is this is just the chocolate milk manufacturers, the dairy uh, manufacturers just wanting to sell their product. And so this is just another way to market it and to give it a health halo when in fact it's really um, something that is not particularly well-suited to athletic performance and recovery. I think much better to choose um, whole food Options And what you're going to want is um, very shortly after your, um, in terms of recovery, very shortly after your training, within 20 minutes, if you can try to have a snack that is um, mostly carb with some protein, or actually what's really ideal is within a two hour window after you're working out to just eat a full balanced meal. And by balanced, I'm meaning drawing on the different plant-based food groups. So, um, grains, particularly whole grains, um, Uh, nuts and seeds, uh, beans, lentils, protein foods, soy foods, and also fruits and veggies. Including something from each of those groups would be wonderful, um, like a big Power Bowl or um, a salad or chili, curries, like those kinds of foods have a full meal. uh, And that is going to be what will um, best provide the nutrients that you need
1: in order to um, meet your needs. Okay, great to know. Um, just in general, are there like what are some of the reasons that you, I guess, suggest your clients avoid or limit dairy? So,
0: I'll be honest that I think the number one reason to avoid or limit dairy is for ethical reasons, and the number one, the number two reason is for environmental reasons. But in terms of your health, I do think that um, dairy is not really providing anything unique that you can't. Get from other foods which are more anti-inflammatory and uh, better for you I think you can absolutely get all the protein all the calcium um, you know that you that you could get from dairy you can get those from plant-based foods that are going to offer a lot more to you I am not going to uh, really, Say that dairy is um, going. I'm not going to really bash dairy in terms of health outcomes. I think, to be honest, the research is very murky and mixed. Part of the problem is so much of it is funded by dairy. It's it's a lot of it is very hard to sort through. Um, the other problem is is when you look at a lot of the research on dairy, it's like what are they comparing? Those people who are eating a high dairy diet to? Are they saying they're comparing someone who eats a lot of dairy to someone so they're eating a standard, uh, you know, American diet with a lot of dairy? And then they're comparing to someone else who eats a standard American diet without a lot of dairy. And then they'll say the people who ate more dairy did better. Well, okay, maybe people who drank a lot of skim milk did better than people who ate more steak or something. (laughs) It's like, okay, let's get a group of people in there who are actually eating a varied, mostly whole food plant-based diet and compare that. And then let's see who's doing better. So I do think the dairy research is hard to... um, is hard to elucidate. However, when you look at saturated fat intake in Canada and the U.S., cheese is up there actually as our number one source of saturated fat. Um, and uh, I think a lot of people don't think of that when they think of saturated fat; they tend to probably think of steak. Uh, they'll think of you know the white marbled fat on the edge of meat. Sorry if that if hearing that upset anyone. I'm sorry to talk about that, but um, but actually, uh, the number one source in North America of saturated fat is cheese. And I think if we are able to reduce our dependence and our really addiction to dairy as a society, we will reduce our intake of saturated fat and therefore also uh, reduce, um, you know, heart disease, diabetes, diabetes certain types of cancer. Um, but again, the research, I will
1: confess to the research being slightly murky. Okay. Um, so I just have to, as we wrap up here, um, just speaking of dairy, I have to draw attention to the fact that, um, Canada's new food guide was released in 2019 and they took out dairy as one of the food groups and they actually recommend water as a drink of choice. Um, I, you must've been ecstatic to see the new version.
0: I absolutely was. I think there's quite a few uh, really strong things about the new food guide. So that's one, that dairy is no longer a required food group. Dairy is included still in the high-protein foods, but actually they recommend that people choose plant-based sources of protein more often. So even though all those other animal source protein foods are included in the protein uh, section, Um, there's guidance towards choosing plant-based sources more often. I think that's really strong. Um, and, uh, I also love the guidance that we should eat together. That's really nice as well. I, I think that that's, um, really healthy and we need to remember that food goes beyond nutrients. It's a way of connecting people. And, um, I like the idea that our food guide is encouraging us to eat, um, in family groups or friend groups and enjoy food together.
1: Yeah, it's so important. Food's more than just uh, nutrients for our body, I think. Absolutely. So I guess as we end here, what is one thing that you would like people listening to take away from this conversation?
0: I think um, if you're listening to this and you uh, have not um, gone completely plant-based, I would really encourage you to just keep moving in the direction of... um, going uh, as far as you can every day, um, open yourself up to adding in more plant-based options and let those healthy plant-based options start crowding out some of the things that you're trying to reduce rather than so much thinking of like, that plant that you're going to have to give up so many things in order to go plant-based instead look at the abundance and diversity um of a plant-based diet and start crowding out some
1: of those less healthy options with the abundance and beauty of plants sounds great so if anyone's listening they want to reach out connect with you maybe even work with you i guess where can they find you
0: instagram uh is a great place to find me um i've post either in my stories or on my grid every day. Uh, So there I'm drpamela.rd. And you can also find me um, at my website, Pamela Ferguson with two S's.com And, uh, you can book there to work with me. I offer, um, pay what you can appointments on Mondays. If anyone's listening to this and, um, finds that they don't have maybe, um, extra coverage through their employer to work with a dietitian and would really like to work with a dietitian, I would never want income to be a barrier. Don't hesitate to reach out, make a Monday appointment and it's pay what you can.
1: That's so good. Um, Can people, are, is this only to Canadians or do you, can you work internationally? No, well? I can work internationally as well. Okay, great yeah. to know. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, Dr. Ferguson, this has been incredible. You're like a resource of information. Um, Thank you for spending this hour with me. Thank you so much for inviting me. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Plant Fueled Podcast. Just a reminder, be sure to check out the show notes for all the resources mentioned and details on how to connect with our guest. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe and share the show with friends, family, or anyone else who may benefit. And one small favor, I would really appreciate it if you could leave a five-star rating or review wherever you are listening. It helps other people discover the show and spread this information. If you have any comments or feedback, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram. Anyways, be sure to move your body, eat some plants, be grateful for the little things, and until next time.